I have trouble ever thinking of art as a responsible act in any respect, because by its nature, in my opinion, it is an irresponsible thing to do. Uh, art doesn't feed us, it doesn't shelter us, it doesn't protect us from danger, so it's really hard to imagine even why our cave-dwelling ancestors bothered. Why did they take the time? I mean, if you've made a knife, it now functions as a knife. You're not making it function any better as a knife by carving little squiggles on it, and yet they did. And I love the fact that it's not really easy to understand why they did, and yet it's clearly a thing that we do. Welcome to Stories from the Top, a production of A2SF. In this episode, Ann Arbor artist and Top of the Park regular David Zinn reflects on his work and his imaginary friends. Thanks to the temptations of a box of sidewalk chalk on an unusually sunny day, David is known all over the world for the art he creates under his feet. David's temporary street drawings are composed entirely of chalk, charcoal, and found objects, and are always improvised on location through a process known as pareidolic anamorphosis, or anamorphic pareidolia. And his most frequent characters are Sluggo and Philomena, but the diversity of David's menagerie seems to be limited only by the size of the sidewalk and the spirit of the day. And now, David Zinn. I started doodling the same time we all started doodling. Because we all begin knowing how to hold a crayon and we have no idea how to write words, so what else are you going to do? Uh, so the very, very earliest doodles are well lost in my early childhood memory. Um, I think it's also important to acknowledge, though this isn't necessarily something I'm proud of, that the very, very first character that I learned to draw over and over again was Garfield the Cat. Um, you know, it was, it was those times where you couldn't, you know, go 10 feet without seeing a book of Garfield comics. Um, and I distinctly remember spending a lot of my time just drawing Garfield over and over again. And the reason I think it's important that I keep this in mind is that, like a lot of artists, I think, when I work with kids, we'll go out with some chalk, and I'll tell them, you can draw anything you want, anything you can imagine, you can now draw right here, right now. And then they will often draw SpongeBob, or Pikachu, or the mascot for their favorite football team and there's a moment where you feel like no creativity should be completely unbridled and I have to remind myself there is a very important power I mean really the first step any of us take towards embracing our own creative ability is taking a character which originally has to be given to you you're a consumer of Garfield you're a consumer of Spongebob you're a consumer of these things and to realize it's just lines and shapes. And you know how to draw lines and shapes. So with a little bit of effort, if you know where to put these lines and where to put those shapes, you shift that character from something somebody else gives to you to something you can make for yourself. For me, since I never actually got very good at copying Garfield, because I'm not a good copyist. Um, and so my Garfields always looked a little bit off. But then when I started doing my own characters, 
no one could tell whether they were off or not, because even if they didn't turn out the way I intended them to do, nobody but me knew what I was trying to do in the first place. So I could just say, yeah, that's, that's totally that. Yeah, he was supposed to look like that. Um, and that is very empowering. And that's, I think, the only way I was able to move on to my first original character, which was way back in seventh grade. Uh, an uncle gave me a bunch of pre-boxed comic book pages, just empty boxes to fill in. And I started a comic called Max the Wonder Dog, which was based on the dog of a friend of mine who lived just down the street from the school. And it was, of course, a cruel, ironic character because Max, in real life, was one of the dumbest dogs you ever met in your life. Um, But it was a nice way to put a cheerful spin on it. Like, no, no, he's not goofy or, yeah, he's just a wonder dog. Uh, And thinking back on it, I could only draw Max the Wonder Dog in two versions, either sitting down, looking straight at you, or standing up and looking to the side. Because I was then, and am now, terrible at drawing dogs. I even had to make his hair extra long and shaggy because I couldn't really handle dog legs. And those weird, I still can't draw them now. Um, And my solution back then was, he's got a lot of fur. It's just, you just can't see him. I know how to draw them, you just can't see them through the fur. It's going to be fine. But that, you know, gave me a, a power of, this is my character. I can draw it any way I think it needs to be drawn. If I only can draw it from these two angles, that's the only way anyone's going to see it. I have had a consistent, lifelong reluctance to be considered an artist in any way. Um which I think is a common problem. I think it's why so many people claim not to be artists who can't make art is because we have this incredibly narrow definition in our group consciousness of what counts as art and who is allowed to make it, Um, which is tragic, I think, because from my experience, and I I guess I can only speak for myself, the worst way for me to make any kind of art is to sit down and say, I am going to make art. Because now you've put this huge burden of, of identification on what you're about to do. And art, it seems to be, in the conversations I have with people and what I'm aware of around society, that art is something that requires fancy tools that you need to be trained to use properly. And even then, you're not going to be a good artist unless you have this special, mystical, God-given talent which we can tell you've been given because people take your art and they put it in an empty white room with a little plaque next to it that explains who did it and why and why we should care. And so if that's what you think of as art, you're not going to just casually make art. That's ridiculous. You can't do that. You got to buy the special tools. You got to go learn how to use them. And then you got to hope that you were given that special, special something, which nobody can put their finger on, but it makes all the difference. So I had no intention, and still, to this day, have no intention of ever being an artist because I don't even think that sounds like fun. That sounds really, really stressful. And then when you add the fact that we're all pretty much aware that the people who we do consider great artists who have their art in those empty white rooms with a plaque next to them usually died before anyone even cared about what they made. So even the best case scenario is you dying penniless and then people thinking you're awesome after you're no longer around to hear it anymore. Oh, terrible, terrible. 
So my only hope, my salvation, was that I never considered myself an artist. I had no intention of doing it as a job. I wasn't even particularly aware that it could be a job. I was mainly uh, using it as a defense mechanism. I doodled to cope with social anxiety. And I was more comfortable, especially in a room with other people in it, if I could keep my head buried in a sketchbook and have my own little bubble of doodling to keep me preoccupied. Um, and that was definitely not art. You know, my favorite places to create so-called art was on, you know, the paper placemats in restaurants and bar napkins uh, and things that were going to be thrown away after I was finished with them. Because now you can be pretty sure that's never going to hang on a wall in a museum because it's going to be in the landfill in about five and a half days, which is good because you're no longer worried about the importance of what you're doing. And worrying about the importance, I find to be the exact opposite of inspiration. The real reason that I started drawing on sidewalks, even though it's had a lot of benefits on all different levels, is because I was self-employed. I was working in my house at a computer that I foolishly put next to a window where I could see what the weather was like outside. And when you live in a place where the weather is often cold or wet or full of snow, in many ways, working for yourself at home is great. You cackle like a madman when you realize everyone's having to do with this terrible commute through five feet of snow and you're already in the office. And then you realize you live in your office and that kind of takes the joy out of it <laughs> sometimes um, when other people don't have to go to work uh, because of the five feet of snow. But on the really nice days, because we have beautiful days in Michigan, and the thing is, we have a very set number of them such that if you don't take advantage of them when they are presented to you, it feels to me like a real moral failing, something you're really going to regret in the long run, that you didn't go outside on that day when it was beautiful. I used to have a superstitious belief that if you don't take advantage of the beautiful day, then fate hands you five extra days of sleet in the wintertime to punish you. So part of the reason why I have trouble remembering and telling people how many years I've been doing this is when I started, it was something I was trying not to acknowledge because it was sheer procrastination. It was extremely irresponsible. I rationalized that because I was a freelance artist doing logos and you know diagrams for recycling programs, that any time I was drawing anything anywhere, I could technically claim to be at my job. You know, I was, you know, just sort of brainstorming some ideas and it happened to be outside where it's beautiful and not at the computer. Um, and it's very gradually shifted from being the way I avoided my job to being my job, um, which is almost problematic. The thing which really helped that shift along and made me realize this was something that really resonated for me uh, was the, the happy complications of drawing on a sidewalk. I hadn't really thought about it much, but one of my reasons for not wanting to be a serious artist was that standing in a studio in front of a blank white canvas was paralyzing for me. There was just too much opportunity too, too much freedom in too many directions makes it hard to move at all. And I'd never had any good ideas that were worth spoiling a blank canvas for, because these paints cost money. 
what are you doing? You should go take a class first. Come on. Um, whereas if you're drawing on the sidewalk, first of all, you're clearly not trying to make great art. I mean, if your tools say Crayola on the side, you should just get over yourself if you think you're going to make great art. Um, and the idea of taking a class to learn how to draw with chalk seems ludicrous because we all have already done it at some point in our lives. Actually, we probably did it at an age where we had much more confidence in ourselves as artists than we do now. So I think that's part of why it works so well, is it taps into that kid version of yourself who knew exactly what to do at all times. The first creatures, the first drawings that I made were two-dimensional, but they were meant to be where they were. They were happier being on the street, limited by the cracks on the sidewalk or the or even just the width of the sidewalk and the length of the day because I had to start drawing something because it's going to get dark soon, so I guess I'm going to draw this. And it was only over time that I realized that these really did feel like manifestations of my imaginary friends. And I didn't really think of it as going out to make art. I thought of it as going out hoping I might run into some of my friends, and we didn't have specific plans, but, you know, you might see them, so let's walk around and see what we find. And... Since the photos are the only thing that gets saved, um, it became problematic when I noticed that drawings that looked very real and very much like they were alive when I was outside with them looked weirdly squashed in the photograph. Because, especially if you draw something very large on the sidewalk at your feet, you can't really look at it from head on because it stretches as far as it wants to across the ground. The one that finally, I think, clicked this for me was a day when I wanted an excuse to be outside, so I went out to the path to the playground outside my house, and I drew a, a dog with wings, because that was what I was enjoying. That was what was making me laugh at that time, was just putting wings on animals that shouldn't have wings. Because there's an excuse for getting other parts of the animal wrong. Like, yeah, those legs look wrong, but it's not a dog, it's a bird dog. That's what they look like. And it was very gratifying drawing. It was a happy dog that was chasing some maple seeds that had fallen on the sidewalk next to it. But there was still a lot of nice day left, and I didn't want to go back inside and, and do my job. So I added a bird dog handler. I drew a kid holding a leash that was going way up over his head because he was walking a bird dog that was flying above his head. And in real life, it was great because you could be walking down the street and you'd see the kid and you'd see the leash and you'd follow the leash and you'd see the dog. But there was no way to get both of these creatures in one photograph because they covered so much distance that if you took a picture from the kid end, the dog was this tiny little smushed shape in the distance and vice versa if you took it from the other end and then everything was upside down. So it made the point that other people probably reach through much more serious research and study that if you're going to draw things that are seen from an oblique angle, you need to account for that. And luckily there is a, a, an ancient technique for this called anamorphosis that has been used for hundreds and hundreds of years of distorting a drawing deliberately so that it looks right uh, from one oblique angle. When you stand off to the side, it looks proper. And that way, at least when the photograph is taken from that one right place, it looks more like the actual dog being walked by the actual kid. Uh, it takes a lot of work. 
Um, and I am indebted to one particular street artist uh, named Julian Beaver, uh, who is in England and huge, immensely talented 3D anamorphosis type artist to the point where if you've ever seen one of those internet lists of really crazy street art that will blow your mind, like three out of five at one point were drawn by Julian Beaver. Incredibly talented guy. But the reason I'm so indebted to him, other than the general inspiration of all the cool things he was able to do just with chalk on the sidewalk, is he was the first and I think one of the only people to ever publish a photograph of one of his drawings seen from the wrong angle. Because when you only see it, and it's understandable, you put a lot of work into a drawing, you want people to see it from the perfect angle. But it's hard to make your brain understand then exactly what into went into making this perfect distortion because you're seeing it the way you're supposed to see it. He did a drawing, I think it was one of his earliest actually, of a, a woman in a bathing suit in a sort of square uh, swimming pool that he'd drawn in the middle of the sidewalk. And it's a very cool drawing. He actually put himself in the drawing. You can see him about to jump in. You've probably seen this one. But he also published a picture of that drawing taken from the other side. And it's only through looking at that drawing that you realize that in order to make this woman look like she was holding her leg directly straight up above her head in this bathing beauty pose, she had to be drawn in such a way that her foot was actually larger than anything else in the drawing. Because in order to make that leg look like it was sticking straight up in the air, it had to stretch like half a block down the street to fight the fact that when things get farther away from you, they get smaller. So if you want the foot to not get smaller, it has to get bigger just to stay the same size. It's hard to explain, but very necessary. And that really helped me understand how much you have to stretch things out to actually make them preserve their reality, to make my imaginary friends not look squashed in the photographs. And incidentally, it's also why my imaginary friends tend to be about the size of raccoons or mice or, or lizards, because... Seeing that drawing made me realize that if you want to draw an anamorphic 3D illusion of a human being, you're going to be there for days. Because that's a lot of stretching to make it look three-dimensional. And that's another way in which I feel like I might be cheating just a little bit. Because if you only draw little tiny creatures, they don't have to stretch nearly as much. Because they would be still under your feet if they were real. You just have to take the picture from the right angle where their feet are closer to you than their head and you're fine. The real cheat, of course, is that there's a paradox here that sidewalk art is ephemeral. It cannot be preserved. If you try, it's just going to give you extra heartache. It's much better to just embrace the fact that this is here for now and it will be gone tomorrow. And it's actually much more fulfilling and gratifying than people think because most anxiety comes from trying to hold on to things. Most peace comes from letting go of them not to get all spiritual, but there you are. And yet at the same time, the photographs that I've taken or that other people have taken of the things I've drawn on the ground are probably never going to leave the internet no matter how much I wish they would. So the photographs have an exact opposite existence. That They are quite possibly eternal just because once a photo is wandering the internet, in who knows how many computers and camera phones and websites and archives, it'll never go away. It'll never be particularly special, but it'll also probably never go away. So, and I kind of like the fact that you get to do both. 
because the people who saw this art when it existed during the brief time that it was actually in a place where it could be seen is usually an incredibly small number of people certainly compared to the audience for any piece of serious art it might be dozens of people who actually saw this drawing in real life and after it's destroyed by a rainstorm that group will never get bigger it will always be a few dozen people and yet the record that it happened is actually much easier to share with the world than an, than a painting on a canvas much much easier i don't have to store it in my attic i don't have to hang it up on in a tent and hope it doesn't rain during art fair it's actually feels like i'm cheating to be honest with how easy it is to save the photograph instead of the original I think it would be fair to say that these characters, these creatures, they they represent what I felt was missing when I left the house. Um I'm often looking to cheer myself up when I am walking around town. You know, if the day doesn't seem quite fulfilling, one benefit of having access to your creative agency is you can change that. If you're not seeing what you want to see, add it. So that makes it such that the characters are often not so much representations of me, but representations of what I'm lacking. <laughs> representations of what I need in my life. So my creatures tend to be very bold and fearless and adventurous and cheerful and optimistic. because then they're there to be with me in a very important way to balance out the fact that I'm actually not really any of those things as a rule. Um but now I can feel like they're part of my life because I put them there. Um I find it very interesting that the first one that became very common, Sluggo, uh the green guy with the eyes on stalks. Um he evolved to have these eyes like slugs that are up on top of his head with no eyelids. just because it was hard to know where to put eyelids when the eyes aren't on a face completely accidental and you could say lazy like ah just leave him off but as a result he is super excited about everything that happens to him because he has no choice <laughs> it is all i i've tried and it's impossible to make him look blasé or disappointed or because it's really hard when you have no eyelids to to restrain that enthusiasm but he also eventually sort of had to share space with the flying pig that seemed to show up a lot at the same time and maybe this is why and it was actually at the summer festival it was at the top of the park where at one point i think it's because you had dinosaurs running around the top of the park that year and so i think okay i think i can see a dinosaur here yeah that looks like it could be a dinosaur okay so dinosaur is going to be here Sluggo's going to be here. He's going to be making a scary face and with his arms up in the air um and trying to scare Philomena the flying pig. And Philomena is going to look scared, but Sluggo's not going to know that she's actually scared because there's a real dinosaur right. It was a very elaborate scheme. I don't do these things anymore because it's just too much thinking. But I thought, yeah, this is going to be great. So, yeah, we'll put this and we'll have Sluggo. He's got the scary face. He's got no eyelids. That's going to work great. He's very natural for this job. There's the dinosaur looking all scary and confused. Now I just got to draw the flying pig and have her look scared, and that's where it all fell apart. 
because I try. Okay, scared eyes, scared face on the pig. Go. Nope, that's not it. Erase it. Okay, well, it's a little smudgy now, but we can try again. Scared face on a pig. You can do this. Squint at the ground. Connect the dots. And no, that's not it either. That's that's not good at all. Scrape, 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 scrape. Now it's getting really smudgy. And it became clear after a few tries that this character does not get scared. And I've realized since then that it's actually more than that. It's not just that this is a very brave pig. There's something about the way this face evolved from drawing it on the street that it's always just okay. Always just very much like, okay, yeah, mm mm-hmm. That's what's happening. Which is a very logical counterbalance to a character who's always super excited about everything that one is very emotional and it's good to have someone it's good to have a friend who gets really excited about stuff it's also good to have a friend who's always very steadily in control and cannot be flustered and that i think is part of why the pig kept showing up because it was really useful to have a friend especially if i was traveling and not sleeping enough and working too long and getting too hot and too sweaty and then to be able to see this friend saying no it's okay you're okay it's gonna be cool so that i think is why those two characters have showed up so much over the years because they make a nice sort of yin yang of a support system uh, as imaginary friends thank you for listening to this production of a2sf we would like to thank our team including our interns associate producer Bonnie Bremer, and the sound engineer, Evan Starr. Our marketing and communications manager, Natalie Robbins. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Nadim Azam and mixed and mastered by Elliot Saba. Me, I'm programming and operations manager, James Carter. If you like what you heard, subscribe, rate us, and share the joy with someone you love. The Ann Arbor Summer Festival, A2SF, is supported by a generous community of individuals, foundations, and local businesses. Please consider donating to the festival at a2sf.org donate.